0: So we are in a series on the book of Hebrews and I've been promising to reach chapter 6 but not today, maybe next week. Last week I stopped the series for a moment at the end of chapter 5 so that I could continue to prepare a good foundation for us to understand chapter 6 and beyond. There are some serious warnings in the book of Hebrews and I would love for us to have the right response to those warnings. I said before that I don't think a believer should be becoming insecure and having their faith eroded by fear that they would lose their salvation. But I do want us to live in the fear of God as believers, so that we respond rightly to the warnings that God gives us in His Word. So today we're going to continue, and I'm going to look at the idea of um, true backsliders, and what it really means to backslide, and what kinds of backsliders there are, people who fall away, if you like. And uh, we want to examine that more this morning. So let's pray and then I'll start the sermon. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this morning you are here. By your Holy Spirit, you are present. And I ask God that through your Spirit, you administer to each one of us. Speak encouragement, speak life, speak conviction. Challenge us and call us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last Sunday, I went through a substantial number of scriptures, and those scriptures convincingly make the argument that the eternal life we receive from Christ is, in fact, eternal. In other words, that you receive eternal life from Christ and you live in eternal life for eternity and you don't lose your salvation. It's something that God secures on his side of the deal, and from our position, we should live in a place of faith and we should walk in faith and we should know that we are saved. One of the scriptures we got to by the end and we referred to just once was Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is a powerful, powerful verse speaking about an unbreakable covenant. A covenant that was put into place and is everlasting. So it doesn't break the way that unfortunately the law of Moses was a covenant made at Sinai. And it was a breakable covenant because of the sinful nature of man. And there was nothing wrong with the law, but the covenant failed because people failed. And because of the sin of man, we were unable to fulfill perfect righteousness through the law. So the covenant of the law was in fact a good covenant that was sabotaged by weakened people, people weakened by sin. But this new covenant doesn't have that problem. It can't be sabotaged by the people who enter into it. You come into it, through Christ, and He becomes your high priest, and He takes care of all of the necessary work for atonement to be provided. So there never is a work for you to do in even entering in or keeping this covenant. The amazing thing is Christ representing man stands on the man side of the covenant, but He's also God, so He can represent every man And He makes a covenant with God the Father for us, and then He keeps it for us. And so this covenant God describes, He is the genius behind it. God is the maker of this covenant, He designed it, and He inaugurated it through Christ on our behalf where Christ stands for us. And we receive His mercy, His atoning sacrifice of His bloodshed for us, and we receive His righteousness. Righteousness. He fulfilled all of righteousness for us. And so it becomes an unbreakable covenant for us because Christ as a man has actually upheld it as a man and he can be our high priest. And Michael Eaton points out that this language Jeremiah is using is extraordinarily strong language. The covenant is everlasting. It's administered by God himself. It is unbreakable. It involves God never turning from his people and them never turning from him. What more could be said to make the point that New Covenant salvation is ultimately indestructible? God will see to it that the status of His people as saved people is never lost. Notice that this uh, verse also says that the salvation is protected by God's inspiring fear in His people. It's quite sobering. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. They may not they, they're going to be held and captivated by the fear of God and that will keep them. And I, I remember saying before, when it came to something like sexual purity, and when I was a young man and I had a, a girlfriend and I think what stopped me from committing worse sins than I did commit, it was the fear of God. It wasn't the presence of my parents. It wasn't the fear of being caught out. It wasn't the the, the consequences of some kind of a, Morality within me, it was literally the Holy Spirit speaking to my spirit and saying, no, what you're doing is wrong. And I feared God. I feared God and therefore I restrained myself. And this is very interesting because human beings who try to uphold the law fail because they try in their own strength. But when you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you find the grace of God enables you to say no to ungodliness. It trains you, in fact, to say no. So, you as a believer, when you're fighting sin, rather than trying harder in your own strength, you should try to soften your heart to the Holy Spirit and say, God, speak louder in my ears. God, I want to hear you. God, I want to please you. God, I'm afraid. I fear you and your holiness. You are holy, and I want to honor you. It's a different motivation from law keeping. So that's a point we'll dig into more in terms of the fear of God, which is in Scripture a very positive thing. It's a kind of inner work brought about by the Holy Spirit, yet it's also a command to God's people that we should fear Him. And we're also told in Scripture that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So to disregard God and His salvation is foolish. And because salvation is by faith, and saving faith is indestructible, the new covenant salvation is is indestructible. I'm speaking about now indestructible faith. What do I mean by this? And let's explore this idea that it's a kind of faith that that perseveres, but it perseveres because of God, not because of us. So this faith that we walk in as believers, the the power of that faith comes from God, not from us. Um, jesus said to peter at one point they were you know walking along there two seemingly you know human beings peter a fully human jesus looked exactly like a human fully human but also fully god you know the story jesus says to to the disciples peter or he says to all of them who do you say i am and peter says you're the christ you're the son of the living god He's like absolutely convinced about who Jesus is. He's declaring something that's revelation from heaven. He's confessing Christ is the, is the, is the Savior, the anointed Messiah of God. It's a, it's a powerful statement. But then later Jesus says, "Simon, Satan has uh, you know, requested to sift you. And I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it's there. That we find this interesting example of a backsliding Christian because later we see that Peter does in fact go through some deep sifting and testing and I want to unpack that a little bit that the intercession of Jesus when he says I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail that intercession of Jesus is the same intercession that we talk about when Jesus lives to intercede for the saints he's he's interceding for us today It's a present continuous situation. And so you need to connect these ideas. You may say Jesus was there praying for Peter, but where's Jesus for me? Well, he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. So the point is that the believer who backslides at his worst is not actually ceasing to believe the gospel. We'll see that just now. Unlike maybe another kind of person who maybe never was saved, and doesn't really understand the gospel, but thinks they do. So for a believer, God will do whatever needs to be done to keep his people. And we saw that Jesus said, none will be taken from my hand. I and the Father, both of us, you can't, you can't be lost. J.C. Rowe said this though about men and women in general. They swallowed down sermons about Christ's willingness and Christ's power to save, and yet continue in their sins. In other words, there are some people who gladly support what they hear being said from the pulpit, but they don't actually change and they never encounter the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, hearing and agreeing with just some kind of mental assent is not the same as believing with saving faith some people can actually agree with what Christianity teaches but still not believe in Jesus and with saving faith a guy who's a bit interesting like that on the fringes is Jordan Peterson he talks a lot about how the world needs Christianity he says it's by far the best thing that humanity's ever had and we should all actually practice Christianity but he doesn't believe in Jesus not yet we still pray that he meets Jesus and gets saved But he's looked at Christianity from a moral framework and a philosophical framework and he says, you don't get better than that. But he hasn't, so he's got mental assent, he's heard the gospel, he likes the ideas, but he doesn't get it. He hasn't got it. Is saving faith simply making a decision? Well, the New Testament never uses this language. Michael Eaton said, I personally never get someone to say a prayer and then say to him, now that you've said this prayer you're eternally saved see this is one of the problems with altar calls i have no problem with people who who do alter calls i personally like the idea of calling for a response i think it's great if you can push people to declare their belief in jesus with loving non-manipulative tactics but ultimately that word that gets planted if it gets planted has to take root and bear fruit in order to be seen to be authentic so there is a possibility that we could fool ourselves that we we put people under a lot of pressure to say they receive jesus through whatever methodology we follow and some will say yes they're receiving jesus they'll raise their hand i've seen this in the villages we've done evangelism and we've had people raising their hands to accept jesus again and again on repeated visits same guys And they still beat their wives and they're still addicted to alcohol and they still don't know Jesus. So just hearing and then making a decision doesn't equate to saving faith. And so we need to be mature about this. When it comes to salvation, there must be the Spirit's work within us as well as Christ's work for us. Christ has died for us. Christ alone will be our justification. But true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is powerful. It regenerates. It gives a new heart and a new nature. And so when we go back to those villages where I see people who have put their hand up to receive Jesus, but I can see there is nothing of the gospel transforming their lives. There is no love for Jesus in their hearts. I actually say they're not yet believers and we must preach the gospel again. Teach them again and we must pray for them again. See, this cannot this change cannot be immediately seen. And the parable of the sower affirms it. It takes time. The word has to take root. It can be even longer before you see the fruit that accomplished accompanies salvation. So when we when we try to take shortcuts, we get the wrong we we're satisfied by the wrong response in a person's life. Yeah. For example, if someone says, I believe in Jesus, we haven't yet begun, begun to hold them to account to demonstrate the life of faith like James does. James writes to say people can say, you know, they have faith, but faith without works is actually proved to be non-genuine faith. And so James teaches us to actually look at people's lives or our own. And ask ourselves the question is there the fruit that should be accompanying the faith and scripture teaches that it doesn't teach that by speaking in tongues you're a believer they've actually done some very interesting experiments i saw this in my son's theology degree he did he went and enrolled in a seminary did a theology degree and one of the stuff is a psychological study of mass hysteria events where people copy one another and they saw people who in the context of not even christian events were able to be induced into doing things that they didn't believe in when we were young people we were in a youth group where we wanted the holy spirit and we prayed for people to receive the holy spirit and one guy later confessed that he just fell on the floor because everyone else was so we could easily have said look the holy spirit's moving but actually he was moving but not on everyone the same. And so some were experiencing the power of God and some weren't, but all fell. Hold on now, I'm making things far too complicated, aren't I? Well, Let me give you another example. When um, Chairman Mao died in China, I think it was um, his death, the, the Chinese lined the streets weeping, in hysterical weeping. But I tell you for a fact, they didn't all love him. Some of them, you would say, jokingly, maybe they were crying tears of joy. No, they were genuinely weeping with sorrow. But it was all mass hysteria induced. The point is, you can't just look at simple externals. Don't look at gifts. Don't look at manifestations of gifts. Look at the fruit of the person's life. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All those gifts are not gifts. Those are fruits. See, if you look at gifts... Uh, He's got a prophetic gift or he's got tongues. That stuff can be faked. Anyway, I'm going to get further into that example just now. Um, I I need you to stick with me. First, let's look at um, this idea that salvation happens at some point. We know that it happens at a a point in time because at some moment the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and regenerates you. But what is evident from people's testimonies is that not everybody experiences that moment the same way. For some people, it's a radical moment where they feel like everything changes. Some, I know a guy who was sitting in a, in, a, in a pub and he lifted the beer and he says on the way that that beer was going to his mouth, he got saved. He encountered God. He knows it. He put the beer down. He got up and left the pub and he says when he looked at the world outside him, the colors had changed. To his eyes he saw brighter colors that was his experience another guy gets saved and he doesn't even know that he got saved he felt nothing and then over time he starts to realize he's thinking differently about god and the gospel and he actually likes it whereas he used to be suspicious and another year passes and he realizes he feels comfortable talking about god and and then a couple more years he realizes Everything in his life has changed. He loves God. He loves the people of God. He likes to be in that context that he used to be suspicious of. And he doesn't know when he was persuaded of these truths, but he knows he's changed. So it could be that you become a believer through some kind of a long journey and you only look back and realize, wait a minute, I actually believe. Surprised. C.S. Lewis was a bit like that. He was resistant. And then eventually he realized he'd, he'd caved and he he was observing himself and saying something's changed another guy Wesley or one of those he was walking along the road and then he said he felt his heart strangely warmed that was it but another person doesn't feel anything so I'm just saying this because it's not easy for us to be categorical about what a person must go through in order to be a believer or it's not easy for us to look externally and observe what they're doing and say that person is a believer But over time something becomes apparent. So now let's talk about backsliding There are two kinds of departure from a profession of Christian faith. There's a true backslider And that's a believer that despite the very great power of new birth can still get into a very bad place in terms of sin and separation from God or rejection of God a true christian may sin terribly and badly see this is now the true backslider somebody who's known god but has actually got into trouble along the way galatians 6 verse 1 says brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted the words here if anyone is caught In any transgression means if someone is trapped in sin it's not the kind of person who has been found out like I caught you you were hiding it and now I've discovered it it doesn't mean you caught in a sin that way it means if someone has become entangled in or ensnared in trapped in sin and that person didn't intend to be there but somehow sin got into their lives so that can happen to anyone Because that scripture says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so it can happen to anyone who's a believer in any kind of sin. We normally think about sexual sin, but of course there are dozens of kinds of sin. You could steadily just become more greedy. As God blesses you, you get more wealthy. That's happening in my life. I mean, I don't know about the greed part, but... I'm having to watch myself because sometimes life is easier than it used to be and now I want to know am I spending everything on my own pleasure I could be getting entangled in a sin but some people are inclined to fall in one way others feel no temptation about that particular sin but then they're tempted with a different sin and they might fall in a different way and of course Paul says to those who are spiritual you should have the Holy Spirit you should work with maturity to Restore this fallen Christian who's unable to help themselves. They're caught, trapped in a transgression and you who are spiritual should restore him. So it's quite possible for a believer in our company to be very much in a struggle against sin. But the thing about that is we need to approach that with humility and grace and a leading of the Spirit not with some kind of a judgment and condemnation. We need to be careful ourselves. The fallen Christian might drag us into sin. We might get self-righteous and proud that we're trying to help another. Nothing will show how much we are walking in the spirit and whether we can truly help another brother or sister to recover spiritually. The law is of no help at all. Morality is of no help at all. You need to be a spiritual person to restore a person who's caught in sin. So you don't go to someone who's sinning and condemn them. You go to them with some kind of grace and humility and you help restore them to godliness. So there is this kind of thing, a true Christian backsliding badly, but such a person is always miserable. See, they're still regenerate. They still know deep inside the gospel is true. And Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, in a backsliding condition, you may want to revert to the life of the world going out with your old friends may seem more interesting and attractive once more and that's what you'd like to do but this other power is there inside you working in you and you're annoyed you wish you had never known anything about it it's a nuisance it is spoiling life and you resent it you struggle against it and do your utmost and do your utmost to silence it and explain it away but the more you do that, the more this other power works within you and you cannot silence it, you cannot stop it. That's the struggle of a believer who wants to go back to the world. He finds that the Spirit of God is making it impossible for him. So he may go for a while, but he'll never be having fun. He'll deep down inside think, I want to be having fun, but I just can't. It goes on and it nags at you and it troubles you and you're in a conflict. Now, this is the proof that there is life of God within you because there's a power working within you. That kind of faith is never lost. So remember what Jesus said to Peter, even when he was about to deny him, let's read it. He says in Luke 22, verse 31, Luke 22, verse 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. Both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus doesn't say, I've prayed for you that you'll never be tempted. Wish he had. It would be easier for me if Jesus had prayed that prayer. I pray you'll never be tempted, then I'll be free of that. He didn't say, I've prayed that you will never fall. Didn't say that either. Jesus' intercession doesn't guarantee that we never fall in any way at all, ever. But it does guarantee the preservation of our faith. See, the true believer never entirely stops believing, although there may be many temporary failures, and the backsliding Christian may say he does not have faith. But deep inside, it still resides, and he knows it. So, despite what Peter might do and say in denying that he ever had anything to do with Jesus his savior preserves his faith. That's what Jesus said. I'll pray for you that your faith may not, cannot, will not fail. And so Peter is very ignorant at that point of his life. And he says, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And you know that Peter was because in Gethsemane, he was willing to perform a coup d'etat on the side of Jesus. The Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus and Peter whipped out his sword and started the fight cut off some guys here So Peter was passionately for Jesus. He was willing to go To jail for him against the law that's, and Jesus says chill That's not how we're gonna do this and Jesus you know calmed Peter down and healed the guy whose hair was chopped off so This is the thing What happens to Peter? Is very instructive for us because he had expectations of Jesus and Jesus didn't follow his expectations Jesus instead of rising up and becoming the king of Israel right there and then instead of carrying out the coup d'etat that uh, Peter wanted Jesus said no I'm going to actually hand myself over to these guys and at that point this plan of God became so confusing to Peter And the pressure became so high that when the people were turning against Jesus and Jesus was now under arrest, they came at Peter and they said, Weren't you with him? And Peter said, No, I wasn't. And then they said, But I'm sure we saw you with him and Peter says, No, I don't I'm not a follower of that guy. You know what Peter's effectively doing? This is Peter who was there when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is Peter who said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. This is Peter, the believer in Christ, saying, I'm not a believer. I don't believe in him. You can't get more drifted away from God than that to actually reject your Savior. But there's another... that's that's an example of a true backslider right there someone who's just said it's not working i'm not doing this thing for god anymore i'm not following him anymore i'm out of here that's what peter said so that's the one kind of thing there's a christian who can get caught in a sin there's a christian who can hit a crisis and even deny his faith doesn't change the fact that that christian who's caught in the sin isn't happy with his sin And Peter, though he denies Christ, is actually still under the hand of God because Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. There's another situation though, one of a false Christian. And this is altogether a different backslider because they're not really backsliding at all. They had nothing to backslide from. There was no regeneration in his or her life, only some external profession of being a Christian. It can happen very easily especially in legalistic circles so in context where people are called on to toe the line in other words all behave the same to be a believer the church has done this through history it has put people under pressure to uniformize their way of serving god rather than focusing on the reality of the relationship with god so there's a difference between one who is regenerated and the power of god is in you and you're holding you to faith and on the other side having the christianity which you have to keep up that you have to keep up you have to maintain see you can wind yourself up like a clock you can make a decision to be a professing christian and you say a prayer which someone told you to pray and you dash around with doing christian activities you can sing songs of worship you can try to live a good life but all the time doing so you've not really come to trust the lord jesus christ you're not trusting him as your savior. You can be carried along by the momentum and excitement of your Christian family or your Christian church, but you never really examine yourself and you never really get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You can also find it to your advantage to claim to be a Christian and go along with Christians, even though you're not. Now I think about this often because I don't think most of us are in that category. I think it's a very small minority of, let's say false believers, but They exist in the Bible, so we have to know they exist in the church. Let me give you an example. There was a team of guys that became followers of Jesus, and there were 12 of them. And then there were some more of them, and they got sent out, like 70 or 72 of them, and they went and performed all kinds of miracles, and they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. And then they went from there, and they grew even bigger, and then suddenly there were crowds following Jesus, and... And then Jesus said, look at all these followers of mine. Some of them are only here for the food. And then he said, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And a whole lot of them said, that's very tough. We're not really your followers anymore. And they left. But those who were still the core followers stuck with him. And they carried on with Jesus because they were really the committed ones who'd done miracles in his name. And they went eventually to the Last Supper. And Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. What did the disciples think of Judas before he betrayed Jesus? Did they look at Judas as one of them? I'm sure they did. There's no descriptions that this guy kept on causing trouble. We knew all along he was a faker. This guy was never one of us. It's not in the Bible because they all believed that Judas was one of them the whole way through the story. And Judas stood with them, laid on hands with them, cast out demons with them. He tasted, he saw, he experienced the power of God firsthand, but he was not a believer. So Judas, for me, provides me with an incredibly disturbing example of someone who was actually at his heart never transformed. Because when the time came and came down to his true idol... He chose his love for money over his love for Jesus that didn't exist and you see that that was the offense that took root with the woman that took the alabaster jar of perfume and broke it in worship over Jesus and it was like this money could have been spent on the poor in other words we don't want to worship Jesus with everything we want to be moralistic we're good we're righteous we see that this is not right we're better in fact and uh, the right thing was to be lavish and reckless in the worship of God. But Judas was actually the guy who was carrying the money bag. Why was he administrating the money? Because he loved money. And then in the end, for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed his Savior. He never, ever believed, and Scripture, scripture makes that quite clear. He was, in a way, God's... Um, Instrument like Pharaoh was God's instrument for a particular purpose that God had. So the people who experienced the feeding of the 5,000 enthusiastically claimed to be disciples. They thought they admired Jesus, but they find out more about Jesus later. And uh, the people love it, uh, but they don't see the significance of it. And in John 6, verse 26, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So that's the verse where Jesus says, you're just following me because it's benefiting you. Of course, the crowds love food. We used to do, like the the church network I was with did ministry in Malawi. We had a church conference where 4,000 pastors came. Pastors, mind you, came to a conference, 4,000 of them. And then when we stopped serving free food that conference dwindled down into the few hundreds so we were so successful until we weren't giving them free food so were their hearts one or not they weren't they weren't with us they were there for the food so this is something that the crowds don't really believe when jesus challenges them he says to them in john 6 verse 35 listen to this john 6 verse 35 jesus said to them I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what Jesus has done is he's upped the stakes. He's now telling them that he is actually the king sent from heaven, and he's going to be savior and ruler of God's people. And this is something the crowds do not believe. So the crowds love the free food, but the, the rest of what Jesus is saying is not acceptable to them. So even these disciples, people who followed him around, love to see what he's doing, They think they're his supporters, but they reject him at that point. And this is what happens to some people. Their faith is tested when the message of the gospel becomes more clear. This is why it's dangerous to preach a prosperity gospel of any form. Because if you tell people, come to Jesus, and Jesus will make your life better, you'll get healing, you'll get health, you'll get success. You're setting them up to reach that point when they discover they were lied to. And they signed up for something that would benefit them, but then when their life turns out to be persecution and hardship, they say, where is God? What's God doing for me? God's not doing anything good in my life, and they fall away. So there's such a thing as a kind of false faith There may be the appearance of faith without real faith at all. There are people who think they're Christians when they are not Christians at all. It's not because they are insufficiently holy. It's because they do not believe. What has happened is that they've come to Jesus wanting some blessing without really seeing what Jesus is saying. Take up your cross and follow me. Leave your family. Die to yourself. The price they haven't actually even been confronted with. When Jesus makes the gospel clear, they decide they do not want this Savior after all. He turns out to be different from what they expected. Jesus asks His disciples to prove they believe. It is not that they prove to themselves that they believe by how righteous they are. That's a theological error. See, in Luke 18, we see this theological error. The Pharisee, Luke 18, verse 11 to 12, the Pharisee standing by... By himself prayed thus God I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers even like this tax collector I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I get so that's not how you prove to yourself that you're a believer by works of righteousness he actually says to them Jesus challenges them that they should prove to themselves that they believe by still believing when the gospel becomes much clearer And Jesus presents his inner circle of followers with this in John chapter 6, verse 62. He says in John chapter 6, verse 62, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What is the significance? Well, let's read from earlier. In John 6, verse 54, I'm going to read all the way through to John 6, verse 63. So John 6, verse 54 Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the the Fathers ate and died, that's the manna in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread, meaning himself, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, they wanting to walk away. But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, that the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the people could hardly believe Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. But one day the disciples will see the ascension. One day the man Jesus will be revealed and crowned king of the universe. Can they believe that? That's the question. In other words, Jesus is challenging his own disciples to say, you'll know that you really believe when you learn more and more about who I am and you still believe. When you discover that I'm going to ascend to heaven and you still believe, then you'll know even more for sure you're a believer. If we're born again, our faith will grow. We will accept what we see when we see the implications of the gospel. In other words, we will be saying, wow, I didn't realize God wanted that from my life, but I know it's true. And then you surrender more. I didn't realize God would also want me to live like that. Not sleep with my girlfriend, but I know it's true, and I will do it because I love him. I didn't know God would also expect me to change the way I work with my money. And I understand the gospel says God owns all of my life, so I will surrender that too to God. And the more you progress, the more you see, wait, I genuinely believe because my whole life is being ordered around God. That's why after being... believer for many years, you should actually be in a stronger position. If you're a true believer, you should be growing in faith. But you can actually even be a preacher and you can be used by God like Pharaoh without being saved. And Jesus warned people against this. He says, beware of false prophets. Matthew 7 verse 15. I'm going to read from Matthew 7 verse 15. We're nearly finished. So Jesus is explaining something to disciples, to believers, and He says, I will say to them. So He categorizes these guys as never having been His. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who do the will of my Father. So I never knew you, is Jesus' conclusion. Those words are not addressed to the disciples to whom Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. He's warning his disciples who do know salvation about false prophets who have never known salvation. The false prophets have been preachers. They've been used in prophesying. They've been very enthusiastic. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Jesus says to them, he he doesn't say to them, I knew you once, but then you fell away because of your sins. He doesn't say that. He says to them, I never knew you there's such a thing as an altogether false disciples disciple and he may become a false prophet he does not lose salvation he never knew salvation the disciples are warned against such people jesus doesn't say i declare to you he says i declare to them i never knew you so this imitation christian is the second category in the parable of the sower when the gospel is preached some hardly hear at all the message of jesus saving royal power in mark 4 verse 15 it says Mark 4 verse 15, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Others hear the message about Jesus' royal power, and they are enthusiastic for a while, but have no deep conviction And the matter, about the matter, and the enthusiasm wears off. There's no real faith. No root took hold. No response took place to God's word. And so that's even the ones on rocky ground, Mark 4, verse 16 and 17. These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately they fall away. So the first appearance of opposition or the first appearance of a powerful temptation reveals the unreality of their faith. And that second person must not be confused with the third person in the parable of the sorrow the third person is actually a believer now this person who hears the message truly receives it but gets distracted by the worries of wealth preoccupations that prevent them from living for the kingdom so we read about a believer in mark 4 verse 18 and 19 others and others are the ones sown among thorns they hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, it proves unfruitful. So they're unfruitful despite the power of the kingdom. The point is, you can be this close to struggling to discern, and at the end of the day, it's not really for us to do that, besides us with ourselves. So you could see somebody and they're struggling, but they, they never... They, they never give up. They're just tangled with sin. They're caught in some kind of worldliness, but they genuinely believe and they never sit easily in that position because God is pulling them to leave it. And you should counsel that one with wisdom and grace and win them over. There's others who look just the same. They're doing, praying, Doing whatever, you know, they do because of their enthusiasm for being part of things, but they're not even believers because suddenly (laughs) they just, they just abandon their faith or they're exposed to be false. I need to wrap this up and now I've got just too much. Let me give a concluding summary. So. When it seems like someone's faith is failing, there's two reasons. Either there never was faith, or there is faith, and they're struggling. That's really the thing. Many feel betrayed by God, even as believers. And then they say they're leaving, but they never truly left. They, 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 they don't leave. They, they For example, they struggle because... They feel like God hasn't answered their prayers, but they still want God. They're angry with God because they lost someone they love or they, they're distracted by things like money and other and career and you name it. They just get totally in a place where they feel derailed, but those could be real believers and we should, we should work that way. We should counsel people towards Christ. They could be under God's discipline. They could have a wrong view of the gospel. But at the end of the day, we have to see that those that God wants, like Peter, even if they get to the point saying, I don't know you, what matters is if God says, I know you, I know you. And so what ends up happening is this with Peter. Jesus isn't doing what's expected, Peter stands up and says, I don't know him. We could reach that point, but God says, before I formed you, I knew you and appointed you. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So it may not. And Jesus gets his prayer answered. And he only prayed, Jesus only prayed the will of God and God heard him. And a little while later, he's reinstating Peter. Going back to show Peter the inner motivation of Peter's own heart. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. You know, he's telling him, do you not see it? You love me. Now get back on on the mission. Do what I've called you to do. But there are others that some thought they knew God. They even cast out demons in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. So it's this incredibly beautiful two pictures to me that shows that what really matters is God's perspective. He says to Peter, you can even say, you don't know me, but I know you. And I'll show you your heart loves me. And once you've gone to that very rebellion against me, you've even denied being a believer. And God says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. See, his heart is different. He's a true believer. He just backslid. But there's another one that says, we knew you. We used your name. We did miracles. We said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. So what matters is, if God knows you. Not just how you feel about knowing God. Ultimately, it's about the love of God that God puts in your heart for Him. And that will determine how you follow God. If you're a true believer, you love God then you will never sit comfortably in sin and rebellion and backsliding. You will always know, this isn't right. I belong to God. That's the strength of the salvation. God will keep those that belong to Him. Won't you stand? The band can come up. Let's pray.